Hey everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. We've got a pretty exciting episode for you this week, but before we get started into these articles we're going to discuss, I just wanted to take a moment and say thanks for listening. Thanks to you guys who are supporting the podcast and the website. Um, we really couldn't do what we're doing without you guys, and I've just been impressed this week. I've, I've been um, thoughtful this week of several new um uh, contributors and donations we've gotten this week, whether it's one time or monthly, and just how thankful we are um, that you support us, that you listen, that you talk about the podcast, that you subscribe to the Weekly Speak. Um, We really do see inroads that we're making into the voice we have in in a culture, and uh, we thank you for partnering with us in that. So I want to talk about an article uh, first and foremost, and, and if you look in the show notes, you'll see the title, that on the surface does not seem like an article that we would want to discuss. In fact, when I first saw the article, if I hadn't read the first paragraph, there's no way I would have read this article. The title, it comes from the LA Review of Books by a guy named R.J. McGill, and the title is Sweet Nothings, the ASMR Phenomenon and American Intimacy. So I'm going to give a brief overview of the article, but I just want to say on the front end, Two things. First of all, an article titled Sweet Nothings is not high on my list of things to read. Uh, And you'll see as we get into this article, it's really interesting that it's called that. But then secondly, I had no idea what ASMR was before I read this article. Did you? No, I did not. Uh, In fact, and it didn't catch my eye. But as soon as I got into it, it fascinated me. So uh, I guess uh, we'll let the cat out of the bag. We are not up with the culture. Apparently, this is a huge deal, and neither one of us had any idea about it. But now now we know uh, what's going on with ASMR. The article starts, and this is what caught my eye, with advertising. And uh, one of the things I think that we need to think more about in the church is that advertisers are some of the best cultural anthropologists we have. They know how people are being formed. They understand how to manipulate people's attention, trust. Uh, As we're going to see here, they're playing on faux intimacy to get people to want what they want. Um, I mean, advertisers are, are incredibly insightful into the cultural condition of people. And so anything we can read or discuss that talks about the best of advertising is something that's worth our time. And uh, they start the article out by talking about a commercial that that aired in the Super Bowl for Michelob Ultra Pure Gold. And they define what they're doing as this autonomous sensory meridian response, ASMR. And they give a great definition, real short definition later in the article. ASMR is a hardwired positive evolutionary response to to being taken care of and feeling loved. So it consists of... Uh, small and intimate sounds like the some of the videos that people post on YouTube are of chewing or uh, mouth noises. You get um, little haptic touches, and the 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 environment that they're trying to create is like person to person contact. Exactly, like you're in the same room with someone, that you feel their presence. But of course, it's being mediated by a screen, by some kind of electronic media. So when you start to understand this technical definition of it, what's underlying it is faux intimacy. So if we want to define what these people are trying to do through this medium ASMR is to create intimacy through electronic means. 
And apparently there's huge YouTube accounts that do this with millions of subscribers where you can watch somebody just doing daily tasks. I know that there's one they don't mention in this article that I came across while I was researching this. Of, of uh, There's like a 16-year-old guy who makes these ASMR videos about being a boyfriend. So he would like tuck, tuck people in at night. He will like talk, text. It's, it's, it's a simulation of being in the same room with someone that you really love, but you don't actually know this person. So as, they, as, as McGill goes through the article, some, what he points out is technology has always been used to simulate intimacy. He goes all the way back to the fireside chats, and that was revolutionary at the time because it was like having the president in your living room. Uh, people thought, oh, TV, when it first came onto the scene, was a gimmick to get people's attention. Um, but he, he says semblances of intimacy have reached their zenith on social media, and I think that's true. Social media is a quantum leap in your ability to encounter other people that you don't know uh, whenever you want to. And in the heart of the article, the, what, what he starts to talk about is, is a division between intimacy on the one hand and publicity on the other. So the phenomenon of social media is based on the concept that publicly displaying things about yourself, whether that's written content on Facebook and Twitter, whether that's pictures like Instagram, whether that's videos, whether that is um, private communication that's immediately deleted, like on mm-hmm. Snapchat, where there's just no, no accountability. All of that inspires this thrill of intimacy, but it's mediated intimacy. To where if you have millions of followers, for example, celebrities on Instagram or, or on Twitter, they are sharing themselves, or at least how they want to portray themselves, with millions of people. And that is public, but the question is, is that actually intimate? And then I just want to read this passage where he begins to get to the heart of the issue, and then and then we can discuss it. He says... It's more than just the division between intimacy and publicity. It's actually a difference between intimacy and trust. Here's what he says. We have swapped social trust for mediated intimacy. Moreover, we have started to confuse trust and intimacy. We are intimate with many, but say we trust few when in fact it should be the other way around. And that is why here it is important to make a distinction. Intimacy requires trust. Trust does not require intimacy. Here's a thought experiment. How many people are you emotionally intimate with but do not actually trust? I don't mean intimate sexual relationships with partners you don't yet know well enough to trust. I'm not sure why he excludes that (laughs) example, but we'll come back to that later. Or family members with whom you are intimate but you do not quite trust. Think instead of people with whom you have chosen to have a long-standing, meaningful, emotional, or romantic relationship. Individuals or groups you, who know your history, secrets, predilections, tics, moral views, intellectual or aesthetic sensibilities. The number of people in this category, people you are intimate with but that you do not trust, is likely zero. Why would we choose to be really close to someone but not trust them. So before we go further in the article, I think this is the issue that he's able to zero in on. As a society, he proposes we've swapped social trust for mediated intimacy. We're beginning to confuse the two. What do you think about that? Oh, I think uh, the advertisers are on the cutting edge. 
of this. Um, one of the statements that you've probably heard before is that politics is downstream of culture. And I know it's one mm-hmm. thing you like to talk about because usually the church gets involved in these issues by the time it hits the political scene. But by the time it hits the political scene, you have missed the boat to some extent because mm-hmm. the culture has changed ahead of that. And I think you're very wise to see the advertisers as being the ones who are most in touch with it. Let me follow this little chain of intimacy and trust uh, this way. We live in a society that uh, as we go more and more mediated, in other words, social media, uh, texting, in other words, less face-to-face, we have a longing for intimacy and we also have a need for affirmation. These things are wired into us. So the longing for intimacy, you see social media exploding because it gives at least some kind of intimacy. I mean, it's a faux intimacy, but I can talk to people like me half a world away. I can leave messages and other people respond to them, and I feel like we're talking. We're certainly not intimate by any means, but we, f- we get an impression of intimacy. Well, uh-huh. let me, can I jump in here? Because sure. I think this, this is where I want to push back on McGill in, in this article is, I think what you're putting your finger on is affirmation. Yeah. But I'm not sure that he's using the word intimacy in a way that as Christians, we want to define the term. So for example, on social media, you broadcast your opinions or interests, or you find a group of people that share your hobbies or your um, career. I mean, it could be a hundred different things. You find that group of people, what you receive from them is affirmation. Right. But maybe maybe I should put the question this way. Is it possible to receive or to experience true intimacy through social media? Well, I would say no, but I would say that a hungry man doesn't have a very refined appetite. And I think Mm -hmm. if you look at a culture that's hungry for intimacy, then social media gets something. It's It's very much the illusion of intimacy. And then the social media companies come along and they go, wow, this is great. How do I make sure people stay with this? Because sooner or later, they're going to realize this is hollow. And so you get things like likes and other things you can do to people's posts, and you you post something on Twitter or Facebook or whatever platform you're on, and you go back and you can get affirmation from people. And so the whole thing draws you in, and it's almost like trying to simulate a circle of friends without Mm -hmm. in any way being able to simulate a circle of friends. ASMR This is advertisers taking it to the next level. They realize Mm -hmm. not only are you wired to want to be close to people, intimate or, you know, involved, you're wired for affirmation. You are wired for the feelings and sounds of intimacy. And so by making these touches and sounds that evoke in us deep feelings of, oh, I desperately want that, They are awakening in us our hardwired desire for intimacy and basically tricking us into thinking we're getting it. Uh, I really Mm -hmm. do not think you can actually have intimacy over um, a social media platform. Right. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I think it's a really amazing observation to make that what the advertisers are doing is ramping it up to the next level. 
I think that's what advertisers get paid to do is to get on to something about the human condition that nobody else is on to yet. And, and a great way to do that is to see around the next corner right? for what, what, what has been happening on social media for the last decade. And their purpose, which you've already queued this up, is simply this. In order, what advertisers are in the business of doing is gaining your trust and then abusing it. I mean, mm-hmm. and I don't mean that in a negative way. I simply mean you buy things from people you trust. That's why we have brands. That's what a whole brand issue is about, quality. In other words, you want to build some kind of trust and say, I'm going to continue to buy your product. Right. Well, we can have trust without intimacy, but we can't have intimacy without trust. I mean, we are wired that, as he said, there's nobody that you're really intimate with that you don't also trust. Advertisers mm-hmm. know this, and they said, I'm going to skip the trust part, and I'm going to go straight for the intimacy part. And if I can build some kind of intimate bond, you will give me your trust to go along with right. it. And that's why I think they're so forward-looking. Or at least your money. At least your uh, money, which yes. really, Which is what they're really after. See, this is where I don't know how much I disagree with the author. I, While I think he's onto something when he says that, we are intimate with many, but say we trust few, it should be the opposite. I agree with that. Yeah. I, I actually think the concepts are more linked than he gives them credit for. But I also want to say, actually, what's happened is we're using the word intimacy for something that isn't quite intimate, whether we right. call it affirmation, whether we call it pleasure, whatever we call it, it it's almost like on social media or in, in these various kinds of faux intimacy, a very hungry person encounters a gigantic mountain of cotton candy. Mm. And it tastes like you're being fed. But in actuality, if if we were to examine what's going on in their body, they are not being fed. In fact, they're not getting any nutrients whatsoever. They're getting sugar or, you know, a, a, a dietitian could tell us what actually happens. They're right. probably getting diabetes is what they're getting. <laughs> but they're not actually getting any nutrients. So what happens when we get on social media to find intimacy, um, th- th- I want to go back to his definition here when he says, I don't mean intimate sexual relationships with partners you don't know well enough yet to trust. This is where his own agenda, probably the fact that he's being published in the L.A. Review of Books, gets in the way of a really powerful argument. Yeah. Because what he doesn't want to do is condemn certain parts of the sexual revolution. Right. But it actually undermines his argument. Because what he needs to come out and say is our whole sexual culture right now, the whole hookup culture, betrays the point that we actually do want to be intimate without trusting people. Right. So, for example, trust is on the decline in every area of society. He points that out. We don't trust the police. We don't trust the government. We don't trust the justice system. We don't trust advertisers. And yet he's going to want to make this caveat about sexual relationships. They are the most intimate thing that you can experience outside of a relationship with God. And he wants to say... Oh, but I'm not talking about a hookup. That isn't an example of intimacy without trust. That is the ultimate Ultimate, example of intimacy without trust. And people are willing to do that because they want to taste something. Right. Even if it doesn't give them any nutritional content. In fact, even if it leads to significant health problems later on, they want to taste something. So whether it's affirmation on social media whether it is the way that advertisers or YouTubers or whoever are using ASMR, 
as simulated intimacy, whether it's a hookup, like whatever it is, we do have a culture-wide phenomenon where we believe that intimacy can exist without trust, without commitment, without all of that. And what I want to say is the fundamental difference between that definition of intimacy uh-huh. and a biblical definition of intimacy is, biblically speaking, you don't get to control how you are intimate with someone else. Right. You actually don't get to present a version of yourself and call it intimacy biblically. Whereas social media and all these other outlets offer you the opportunity to curate and present a version of yourself to control the entire experience and call that intimacy. I think there's a fundamental impassable gap between those two concepts. Oh, and I'd add one more thing because I think this is heading for uh, a lot of broken hearts, if you will. If you think about what we do in a, in a true intimate relationship, as intimacy grows, privacy goes down. In other words, we share things about our inner selves, uh, experiences, feelings, dreams, hopes, whatever they may be. And what you see happening is it's really interesting on social media when you take this starving individual and give them a taste of something and call it intimacy. Look at how we've responded. We have given up all of our privacy. I mean, Mm -hmm. we used to worry about privacy laws. You don't need privacy laws anymore because everybody in America has given all their private information freely to social media companies because we felt the taste of intimacy, and we responded by giving up our privacy. And that goes nowhere. Because it is a false intimacy, it's going to result in a lot of broken hearts. Yeah. I, I want to give, so let me give a read on this, uh, maybe a, a slightly different narrative, and then push back on it and tell me tell me what you think here. I think what's happened in social media, I think what happens in these settings of faux intimacy is, what, what we've done is we've given away parts of ourselves, parts of our privacy that were, were not previously public, mm-hmm. but we've kept an essential piece of intimacy off the table, which is allowing other people to know us in ways that we don't control. So while we might put things on social media that otherwise wouldn't have been public 100 years ago or 50 years ago... We're doing that so that we don't have to be known in the ways that we're scared of being known, in the ways that we're not comfortable letting someone else know, in the ways that an actual human being that you let into your life is going to know you. They don't actually get access to the parts that truly create an environment of intimacy. But we've let certain things out there that almost look like we're being intimate in the hopes that maybe we'll get intimacy without the risk. Basically, and this is a great point you make, are you saying that we we are trying to find a mechanism and think we have to get intimacy without vulnerability? That's exactly right. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. I think that's exactly what's happening in all these circumstances. And that's why I ultimately think that McGill in this article cannot actually understand his own point because he can't define the words right. Mm -hmm. So as long as you hold out that intimacy and vulnerability are not linked, they're not a one-to-one ratio, then you can have all the conversations you want about trust and public trust and private trust. And and he, he offers later a solution that I think is really unconvincing. 
because he doesn't understand that you cannot actually be intimate if you're not going to be vulnerable. And um, I don't think he has a category for that to be true. Right. Uh, or, or, or at least for those terms to be linked together in the way that I think they should be and I think you think they should be. I do. And I think, you know, if you're, if you're trying to solve the problem, and I, I would suggest maybe the underlying problem in the culture is an, uh, loneliness uh, and anxiety of not being able, things are moving too quickly for us and anxiety comes with that. And we feel a little cut off and lonely. And so one of the, you know, one of the cures for loneliness is intimacy. And that's true. But this kind of intimacy that requires no vulnerability on our part, I don't think that's going to alleviate the deep loneliness that we feel. I, th- I think that's proven in the last line of this article. He, the way he ends is a little bit of a surprise. Again, I almost wonder how much of this is is towing the line for publication, how much of this is uh-huh. uh, almost not realizing the way that this sounds, given what he's previously written. He ends the article this way. In this way, ASMR videos offer a way for us to sense what intimacy feels like in this digital age. In a society increasingly devoid of trust and in desperate need of attention, hmm. agree or disagree with that? Yeah, I. Uh, I mean, I agree that perhaps ASMR technology will remind you of what intimacy feels like, but mm-hmm. in terms of are you experiencing intimacy? Not at all. And in fact, mm-hmm. he's saying let's substitute real intimacy. Let's let's as a substitute for that. Let's just give the occasional good feeling that reminds us of what real intimacy is. And what's scary about that, Cole, is if you've got a generation coming up that does not have the intimacy, vulnerability, the hurt, the pain, the joy that comes with that, then do you think they're going to be satisfied with this little illusion of intimacy? Well, I think what we see is if if you read things like The Coddling of the American Mind or The Rise of Victimhood Culture... Um, what you see is we have a generation of people who are really uncomfortable, anxious. Mm. You know, Hyten Lukianov's thesis is basically the coping mechanisms that we're trying to apply to anxiety are actually more like the symptoms of things like PTSD or chronic anxiety right. than they are like healthy coping mechanisms. And so you get into this vicious cycle of anxiety, and certainly we're experiencing that as a culture. I, I wanna, I want to make one. I guess I want to make one concession, then I want to flip this around and talk about how it applies to the church. The concession I would make is there is a real foundation for why people are scared of vulnerability and intimacy. In fact, I think there are are dozens of different reasons why, and and a lot of them are very good reasons. The first one I think that that we need to be mindful of is just the widespread nature of abuse, and whether abuse is actually more common now than it was 100 years ago, it's certainly more publicized than it right. was. And so the weight of it feels heavier than it was 50 years ago. Not only are we more prone to talk about it, which I think is a good thing, uh, more prone to get help for people who have been abused. Secondly, we're more prone to read about it all the time. We are mm-hmm. inundated with other people's abuse and reminders of people who have been abused, their own abuse. Right. So that weight is significantly heavier now than it was before, whether the actual instances are any different. And then secondly, 
I think it's important to admit that there have been probably through the same channels, social media and, and just the, the constant 24-hour connection, uh, violation of trust from institutions, from family members, from people that we've looked up to. All of that feels heavier uh, in an age where you're constantly connected to things going on. So what I don't want to do is dismiss a fear of vulnerability and intimacy out of hand. I think there's a lot of justification for feeling that way. But I want to shift the conversation a little bit to what we should learn from this in the church. And the point I want to start out with... um, is that actually Christianity is a relationship, is a religion of relationship and intimacy. So part of the problem that we've run into in the church, one thing that advertisers know that a lot of churches apparently don't, is that people are not primarily formed through information, although information is important. People are primarily formed through vulnerability and intimacy. Mm-hmm. And in fact, those are the building blocks of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And Bible studies, sermons, small groups, church programming, all the things that we've constructed in the American church that we would consider discipleship or programming, all of those create environments for intimacy and trust and vulnerability, but they themselves are not the building blocks of, of right. a relationship with Christ insofar as it, as it pertains to intimacy, trust, vulnerability. What... As a pastor, as a teacher, uh, as a church leader, what are the things that are on your mind when you read an article about this as it pertains to formation and uh, discipleship in the American church? Well, two thoughts. One is it worries me if we begin to emulate these techniques without understanding their limitations. And by that I mean... We might look at a technique and say, wow, that really increases, quote, intimacy, unquote, mm-hmm. without realizing that the best it can ever get is a poor imitation of intimacy. And so maybe mm-hmm. our social media hits go up and maybe our watches or things go up on online, but it's really not getting us where we want to go. My second thought is that I completely agree with you. Knowledge matters. But it's the intimacy of following Christ and becoming intimate with Christ that's really transformative. And that's why I think discipleship has to be more, and it always has been, more than teaching. I Mm -hmm. love the discipleship model, and that is where you have an apprentice. You have Jesus and 12 guys following him, and you have those 12 guys with other people following them. And, uh, you know, there's a big big interest in one-to-one discipleship studying together, but doing life together. I'm a big fan of those things because you begin to get intimacy. You begin to pray with people about things that you've never told anyone about. And now mm-hmm. you're becoming vulnerable, and now the Spirit can really work in us. So I, I wholeheartedly agree that if we confine discipleship to the realm of information, we're really missing the boat. Yeah, I, to, to both of your points there, I think one of the key questions is, with whom are we building intimacy? That'd be the first thing I would say is there's a whole group of Christian influencers and, and people on social media who are trying to do some very similar things to what this article is talking about. And I can't help but wonder 
who is designed to be intimate with whom? Is the person watching this video really being pushed to be more intimate with God, more vulnerable with God, or are they basically getting the same thing they could get on a Michelob Ultra commercial, uh, trying to be intimate with you, and you have some Christian language you know, around right. it as a facade? I think we need to keep an eye out for that. I do, too. The, the cult of personality is just as strong in Christian culture mm-hmm. as it is uh, in, in secular culture. And I'm saying that knowing that we are running a media company. Mm-hmm. We, we are putting media out, and, and it's something that we need to keep an eye on both in our consumption and in our production of media to say, who are we actually fostering intimacy between? Is it between a pastor and the people, or is the pastor actually using the the trust and the position and the gifts that he's been given in order to show people what it means to have an intimate relationship with God. So I think of, you know, a really formative verse for me on this topic is when in first John in the intro of first John, when John says the life of God was made manifest and he says that we are now partakers of the divine life. We actually have mm-hmm. been invited into that. What he's referring to there is intimacy. Right. It is vulnerability. It is being known at a deep level. And so in the church, what we want to do is we want to show people, encourage people, create environments for people to pursue that using the trust that we can develop, using the trust that we've developed with God in order to facilitate that. Um, to your next point, that's why I think discipleship is so important. Discipleship, at least one-on-one or one-on-small group, has components to it that can't be replicated in mm-hmm. public ministry. And you see both of those things in the life of Christ. Um, you know, I'm scrolling through examples in my head right now about ways that Jesus fostered this kind of intimacy with his disciples and ways that we are pointing people to that or, on the flip side, ways that we're actually getting in the way of that with programming right. in the evangelical church. Exactly. I think those are real concerns for us, but also I, I feel like this article's helped me to reorient or perhaps sharpen my thinking and reminds me what we have to offer the world through Jesus Christ is true intimacy, and the world has nothing to compare to that. Yeah, I, I think that the quote that was resonating in my mind as I was reading this article is the Keller quote. And I'm not going to get this exactly right, yeah. but you know, he says, to be known but not loved is terrifying. To be loved and not known is superficial. But to be loved and known is like being loved by God. Right. Uh, where he says, the love of God actually isn't superficial. It He knows who you are. He knows all everything about you and yet continues to love you deeply because of that. Um, and at the same time, it's okay to be vulnerable. It's safe to be vulnerable with God. Uh, you know, our, our entire goal is to be redeemed to the condition of Adam and Eve in the garden, naked and unashamed, right. both between God and between other people. You know, they, they hide as a response to a breach in intimacy. Exactly. And then in the, in the New Jerusalem, the picture that we get that is so powerful is not just that we will be with God. It's even more powerful than that. It's that we will be face to face with God. Right. You know, it says in the end that he will write his name on our foreheads. 
in order to do that, you have to be staring somebody right in the eye. Mm-hmm. And uh, we will gaze upon the face of, of Christ forever is one of the pictures that's just used throughout the New Testament. That's the kind of intimacy we have to offer as Christians. And I think where I would leave it is that uh, anything less than that is an opportunity for us to point to something that you can't get anywhere else. Any offer of faux intimacy in society is an opportunity for us to point to the true intimacy that every person is longing for, whether they know it's found in Christ or not. And we should be able to take that opportunity. So we've got a second article I want to discuss, and and it's related. It's not the same topic that that we've been on. And this one comes from Laugham's Quarterly, which is just a unique and interesting periodical. (laughs) I I know sometimes I spend 30 or 45 minutes in Barnes & Noble reading it. And uh, this is by David Wooten, and it's called The Impossible Dream. Maybe give us a flyover of this article. Well, let's see. It begins with uh, the Declaration of Independence and Thomas Jefferson's words that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And what uh, Wooten does is he begins to look at what happiness, or at least the pursuit of happiness, has meant throughout history. One thing I will say is if you'd like a quick tour of the political philosophers throughout the ages, you get a two or three paragraph tour of how they understood happiness. And when you and I were discussing it, one of the things you said is uh, the difference between how this, how the word happiness was understood in Thomas Jefferson's time and how it's understood now. And I think that probably gets to the crux of the article. Yeah, one of the reasons I really like this article is because it forces us to come to grips with with two key parts of the American system. And the first one is, why is the term the pursuit of happiness included in the Declaration of Independence at all? So right. a little background on this. You get Locke's two treaties, treatises on government, which is the foundational work that Jefferson is working off of. And in, in his statement, it's it's the fundamental rights are life, liberty, and property, property ownership. Right. For some reason, when Jefferson writes the Declaration of Independence, what he says is, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable, unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and everybody's expecting property. Exactly. And he says, in the pursuit of happiness. Well, that's strange out of the gate. And so I think the first question is, why did he say it that way? And then the second thing I think it forces us to grapple with is, what has the government actually promised us? What should we be expecting from the government, mm-hmm. especially in the ways that we view government now, uh, you know, d- decades and decades later, uh, post-civil rights, post-giant um, government offices and bureaucracy, what do we actually expect from the government? So maybe we start with the first question, and you've given a great overview of this. What this article does is it goes through and says, why did Jefferson put that in there? What what did happiness mean at that time, and why did he think that was something that was even more important to put down than property? And early in the article, 
he gives uh, Wooden gives a, a nice explanation. He says, Jefferson meant, I think, that we have right to certain preconditions that will allow us to pursue happiness. Freedom of speech, so we can speak our minds and learn from others. Mm-hmm. A career open to talents, so our efforts may be rewarded. Freedom of worship, so we may find our way to heaven. A free market, so that we can pursue prosperity. Read this way, Jefferson's right to the pursuit of happiness is an elaboration of the right to liberty. Right. And I think, while he doesn't make this case, I think he would probably agree. Put that way, the property is actually subservient to that broader umbrella of what the government is guaranteeing for people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Property ownership would then be part of the pursuit of happiness or the expansion of of liberty. The second question, though, I think is uh, is more interesting. As you move through the article, you, you survey different philosophers, political philosophers, and you get to the point at the end of the article where you ask, so what does the government owe its people? And I, I want to spend a moment talking about that. What do you think about that? Given the way the Constitution was written, given uh, the way that we understand how a social contract works, what does the government owe its people when it comes to happiness? Well, that's a great question. Let me just uh, simplify it by doing a then and now. But, but it's worth reading this article for the philosophers in between. But in the beginning, if you take his conclusion, which I do, that what Jefferson was saying is the pursuit of happiness means that we have a right to certain preconditions, and he lists a few, you know, freedom of speech, etc. I think if you look at it that way, then they felt like the government owed people those preconditions, and by and large, and as, as far as you could equally apply them. For example, defense. In other words, the government defends you so that you don't get invaded by someone outside. That typically is considered to be a real bummer and uh, lowers your happiness level. But you see what I'm saying is the government was going to take on certain preconditions and be a referee, if you will, in certain disputes to make sure you had the preconditions for happiness. In other words, for liberty. Well, fast forward now, and the definition of happiness has changed from being fortunate or being lucky or being in a place where you have the opportunity to pursue what you want or say what you'd like to, I have the right to pleasurable feelings, pleasurable experiences. We have now defined happiness in our times as the accumulation of pleasant experiences. And I think there the trouble comes when you say the government now is responsible for supplying me with pleasurable experiences. I think that's a far cry from the original meaning. Yeah, I can't add anything to that summary. I think that's exactly right. And this is where Wooten leaves it at the end. One of the things that's interesting about this article is it's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. But he does leave you with an interesting line at the end. He says, there's an important difference between us and the Founding Fathers. They saw life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as the alternative to despotism and intolerance. We now can see that a society devoted to self-gratification may, in the end, destroy the conditions of its own existence. So that there's something about self-gratification that is actually antithetical to a society in which you are free to pursue happiness. And there's so many interesting layers to this. I, I want to I stay relatively close to where we as Christians have a unique vantage point on this. Um, neither of us are constitutional scholars. You can find better 
explanations of constitutional <laughs> law and interpretation in other places. But, but where we have a unique view on this is around the issue of Christians, government, social change, understanding the architecture of society in such a way that actually self-gratification is not just antithetical to the Christian life, it's actually antithetical to the civic good. Right. Do you think we can make that case as believers? Well, I think it's going to be a hard case to make viscerally to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very difficult to tell the uh, the crowds, the Roman mob, that uh, this free bread they're getting and the free circuses they're getting are not good for them. By the way, I can't help mention here, I know I'm going to alienate a few of our, our listeners, but this is exactly what the movie series The Matrix is talking about. If you recall, in that series, you have people who are, they don't realize that the real world is they're being used, but inside their minds, they're living in this fantasy world, and they can have all these pleasurable experiences that they want. And as usual, science fiction kind of takes our ideas a little further ahead of us. But I think it's going to be a hard argument to make until people hit the bottom. In the sense mm-hmm. that once you realize the bankruptcy of that idea that you cannot have pleasurable experiences, that the government cannot give you self-gratification, that you can't even give yourself gratification. Uh, for example, one of the quotes out of this is that our strategies for pursuing happiness, meaning gratification, are usually self-defeating. And you look mm-hmm. at our culture and you see drugs, anything that will alter my mental state, You see antidepressants, anything that will make me stop feeling bad. Uh, You see all kinds of behaviors that are seeking self-gratification, and they obviously don't work. But I'm not sure people are open to hearing that message until they realize this isn't working. I don't know. What do you think? Maybe I'm too uh, cynical about it. No, I agree with that, and I think it's important to be able to articulate from a Christian perspective from a constitutional perspective, so much of what we talk about when we talk about politics right now is actually social change, uh, Mm -hmm. different definitions of what it means to to pursue happiness, even though that phrase is not used very much right now. But for example, when I demand that the government should do something for me because it will give me happiness, it will will aid in my pursuit of self-gratification. I think as believers, we need to stop and be able to say, is that actually what the government is for? Right. Not only do we not think that that's ultimate reality, of course, we're not making the case for total asceticism here where no you know, pleasure is ungodly or something like that. But what we are saying is a lot of our legislation, a lot of our conversations about politics center around people saying, well, but if that's what that person really wants or you know, that, that person should be free to pursue whatever um, – you know, there's a case to be made that people should be free to do what they want. They should be able to, to pursue things without infringing upon the rights of others. But there's also a case to be made that a lot of what's going on in our society right now is predicated on people saying, this is what's going to truly make me happy. I need the government to give me this, or I need society, society to not do this, or I need a provision to be able to do this because that's ultimately what's going to make me happy. And I think we need to draw a wedge between what makes me happy and what produces a virtuous society or what produces a civic public or, right. or what are the things that actually builds a healthy society where we can have freedom of religion, to worship the way we want to, to believe the things we want to in the public square. Um, I'm not sure that the way we use pursuit of happiness or the way that we talk about being entitled to what we want to pursue actually produces that kind of society at all. 
Right. Uh, and I'll give you a worst case scenario. And this is uh, this is cynical on my part, but I do believe that that it may happen is in America, we've had a nice little 200 year bubble in history where we have not had a despot. We have not had a totalitarian government. And that is more unusual than anyone realizes. And so the founding mm-hmm. fathers would not have recognized America today because the freedom and liberty and the ability to pursue happiness are unparalleled in all of human history. I think if any of us went to live in, uh, oh, I don't know, North Korea or China for a year, we'd come back to America with a radically different point of view. I do think that this pursuit of self-gratification is one way or another going to lead to slavery. And it's one way or another going to lead to a totalitarian government in the sense that Mm -hmm. I think people that are constantly wanting to be gratified and having the government do it are just asking to sell themselves as slaves to some kind of tyrant. And then once you get a tyrant, I think all of a sudden you begin to realize that maybe the pursuit of happiness isn't all about Mm self-gratification. So that's my doomsday scenario right there, Cole. Yeah. Well, for Christians, at least, I think it's important to point out that uh, a Christian political philosophy is grounded in the sense that there are things that God can do for us that no government can ever do for us. Right. There, there are we, we look to God for our ultimate vindication. We look to God for our ultimate satisfaction. And that's not something that we can actually find in any earthly government. Now, that doesn't render human governments worthless, and it doesn't mean we don't have opinions on it. But when we get to a place where we are actually expecting the government to do things that only God can do, we're headed for tyranny, right? As you as you point out, we're headed for a society where we actually aren't able to preserve any of the things that the Declaration of Independence is pointing to, because we're looking in the wrong place, not to the government, not to God, but to the government. And as Christians, one of the things that we need to get comfortable thinking through is being okay with the fact that that's actually not the role of the government. I right. shouldn't expect the government to do that. Uh, because there's actually a different construction, whether it's the family, whether it's God, whether it's the mission of the church. We as Christians believe there are actually other and more powerful operative groups in a nation than the government. Right. And it's important that we learn to distinguish which which is doing which thing. Yeah, I agree. I, if I Politically, I kind of focus my thoughts. This is a personal opinion now. I think the the best things that uh, America has given Christians is the right of free speech and the right to freely exercise our religion, and the same for everyone else. And, you know, if that's all we had, I think we're doing really well because we can achieve our mission. We don't need very much from a government. And, in fact, if we were Christians in China, we'd say, you know, we don't even need that much. We're still going to do our mission. But my point is is that our mission has been made easier in, in America because of those two things. Everything else... I'm not sure we really need the government for most of the other things. And again, like I've said before, is politics is downstream of culture. And I think if we're trying to change the political environment, we're wrestling the tail of this dragon instead of the head of this dragon. And so mm-hmm. when we take a, a vision of happiness that doesn't involve self-gratification, it involves self-sacrifice into the world, maybe, and I believe, we can change the culture. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.